We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, sit back and listen to the Iron Fist, the Velvet Glove, and Joe the Tech Guy, who was here but he's disappeared. He's coming back. <laughs> this is another episode of the podcast, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, episode 374. Scott's been here for half of them, probably, Scott, over the years, maybe. I would have thought so. I was yeah, very so. regular back when I lived in Brisbane. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So you're returning to form. Good to have you back again, Scott. How's your week? It's been very good. Thanks, Trevor. Yeah. It's good. G'day, the, um, G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. How are yeah. you? Landon changes in the, in the chat room. He says, you're late. Yes, we are, <laughs> Landon. Hardbottom is in the chat room. We are late. Scott, you weren't too perturbed by the proposed changes to the uh, putting a cap of $3 million on your super fund. You've decided no, I wasn't, to, I wasn't, to I wasn't, bail some money out of that to reduce no, it down I a bit, have you? I didn't, I didn't do that. No, I didn't, think, I didn't think that the changes today were all that unreasonable. Mm. Okay, if you really want to talk about it, mm. I think Chalmers flat, flatly refusing to index the the superannuation amount when the higher tax cuts in, that is setting up the younger generation to pay for this expenditure that has come and benefited our generation. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so in, 20 believe, time... in 20 years' time... In 20 years' time, you know, now look, the, the average superannuation account balance now is only $150,000. Right. So it's very reasonable for them to say that $3 million, you're not going to get paid. I agree. But in 20 years' time, salaries will be much higher, which means the contributions going into salaries going into the superannuation contributions will be a lot higher, which will end up meaning that $3 million may become possibly not the average, but it'll become a lot closer to the average, which means that it certainly looks and smells like they are plugging expenditure holes with revenue gains out into the future, which I know is fairly controversial for me to say that, but that's just what it feels and smells like to me. Mm, but these are going to be, by the way, Joe the tech guy is with us, but his video is off. Hopefully right. his audio is on. Joe, are you actually there? Well, Joe, are you there, Joe? There we go. Right. He's with us. His computer's on go slow. So Fair enough. Chime in, Joe, whenever you can, and we'll yep. see how we go. Joe's not in his normal place, so he's, on a, he's in a secret location. Can't tell you any more than that. All right. Okay, back to the superannuation, because that is the story of Australian politics of the week. And, yeah, so basically the story is that Labor government, under Jim Chalmers, has said, you know what, if you've got more than $3 million in superannuation, you're really probably using it as, well, he didn't put in these words, but effectively... Exactly what he was saying. It's, it's, it's more like a tax, tax dodge. Yeah. Yes, because... And I agree with him, it probably is. Yes, and that well, really... Well, it's 30 a, years, 100000 a year, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yes, you can live quite nicely on that. When the idea of superannuation was to fund a dignified retirement, 
not necessarily an exorbitant, luxurious retirement. So mm-hmm. it was to keep people off the age pension and self-funded for a, a, a retirement indignity. And really because of the tremendous tax breaks in it, of course, very wealthy people look at it and go, gee, well, why don't I put my money into superannuation and that way I'll pay less tax. And you can't blame people for doing it. It's just a case that this is what governments are for, is to look at things and go, okay, we need to change that. And superannuation is something that's been changed a lot over the years. So this is just another change to it. So just some of the stuff that came out. So, yeah, you can still have more than $3 million of super in there. You just just pay that uh, tax on it. You're just going to pay more tax. So instead of 15%, you're going to pay pay a rate of 30%. On the balance, in excess of three million, three million dollars. Yeah, what you earn, what you earn on the, what you earn on the balance up to three million bucks, you only pay fifteen yep. percent on. Yeah. So it's just going to basically make the taxation of superannuation very progressive. You know. Yeah, and it'll still be better than the forty-five percent. Yeah, these that people you pay would outside. Otherwise, most probably be on. So mm. it's still, you know, this is big saving. What's what's capital gains? Well, capital gains is capital gains is calculated based on when you sell the asset, how much you sell it for. You end up getting a fifty percent discount on the actual profit that you make on something, and then you then that goes into your that on amount top goes of your into your income of that year. Your income for that year, but I think you've got an averaging provision. Oh, Essentially, if, if you're on the top marginal rate and you yeah. sold a property and made a capital gain. You would pay tax on the capital gain yeah. at the top marginal rate, so it gets thrown on top of your other income and taxed mm. at that rate. It does. I, it was just yeah. How would that compare if you'd invested rather than putting your money in super, you would put it into the stock market? Well, this is you the can whole still put it in the stock market, just in the in the superannuation invo- you know framework. Yeah, yeah, still... yeah. Well, this is the conversation uh, I'm just wondering I was having with, with what, a bit. What, well, the tax rates are going to be, yeah, whether it's advantageous still to put it into super. Well, it is because rather than if you're, just buying shares, you could just buy the shares but do it within a super fund and you'll pay tax. Mm-hmm. Even if you've got $3 million worth of super, you'll pay tax at 30% rather than if you're in that sort of realm, you're, you're most likely paying at 45. Bracket, mm-hmm. 45. Yeah. So. It still it's makes one sense. of those things. I had this conversation with the better half tonight, and you know, we were talking about the the failure of Chalmers to index it. And he said, if you had a twenty year old kid now, would you be advising them to sock extra money into super, or would you get them to invest outside of super? That's a very good question. I don't so know what the answer is. Who should put it in super? Yeah, you, you'd only ever. I don't know, Trevor. I think that one of the things that does worry me is that. You know, they're going down the road of saying that superannuation is purely for your retirement, which I agree with. However, as left over, I should be able to go to my estate to be to for me to divide up amongst my those people that are going to inherit it, rather mm-hmm. than it going to the superannuation industry for them to use as as some sort of bonus for themselves because I died before I had expended all my super. No, it doesn't get lost. No, Your I'm balance just, in super no, still the, the, is distributed. If you are required to roll it over into an, an annuity pension mm. for life, then they're going to pay out your balance until you die. 
and that's what I'm saying is if you die before you run out of your money, then but, you, you've forfeited that to the super fund. Okay, but that be if they make the change of forcing people into that exactly. style of and that of, is that is the problem that you know we were talking about this and and I agree with him. It's possibly the next thing along. Well, but, but, is but that, a pension a pension has always been a gamble. The people who live longer are funded yeah. by the people who live less long. That's true. And, and Scott, there's always a gamble with anything. You could have just your money in the bank or whatever, and the government could change the laws and say, "Oh, we're now going to introduce some inheritance tax or some other wealth tax or something yeah, like that." I know, which so I've got absolutely no. I've subject. got absolutely no no problem yeah. with the inheritance tax. Yeah. You know, because I won't pay it. My my estate will end up paying it. You know, because mm. I'll be dead. Mm. You know, there's I'm other, not going to know what the hell's going to happen. My there's other. daughter's just started her first, well, just starting her first job. Hmm. And, and I told her that she's paying super because she's part-time and not casual. Yep. And she was going, you mean they're already taking money from me? Right. And I'm saying, yeah, this is to fund your retirement in a long time. And she goes, but I want my money now to be available <laughs> for me to spend on my uni fees, which I'm going to pay you know, interest on. And to pay for all of the things, she says the money I, 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 she understands saving early, but she's saying at the moment, why is she taking out a loan to go to uni to pay for a superannuation when in theory she's going to qualify, she's going to get a good job, she'll be able to better fund her superannuation further down the track. Mm. And she thinks she shouldn't be starting paying her super this early. She should be able to use it for her expenses as a young person. Yes, if yeah. you view super as something that you're not getting that money in your wage and it's been taken out of that, but is it extra to your wage that's putting put in there, you know? Well, that's the whole well, point. You know, it's one of those things. I, I'm i very glad I work for a company that doesn't quote superannuation as part of your salary. They just they pay it over and above what they've got to pay you. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it always annoys me. You, you quote a figure when the, you, you're going for a job. You quote a figure and they say, oh, so is that total? Is that including super? And I'm going, no, that's after tax. Yeah. Uh, after tax? Well, if they quote a stupid figure, right? if, they, if we're agreeing a, a salary, then superannuation is on top. This is not the total bundle. You know, I why agree. not take oh, out my, my office expenses, you know, the, the lighting, the air conditioning? Why not take all of that out of my mm. wages as well? All right. Well, you know, I guess, I mean, it's all came apart around with Hawke and Keating, wasn't it? It was the Accord. It was, it was cutting deals. It was all deals. part of the Accord. They, they cut a deal with the union movement and they said, look, in order to get you guys on board, what are we going to do here? And they said, well, we want compulsory superannuation. Mm. And they actually did it then. So that was where most of it, that's where it all started from. Now, if you listen to Paul Keating, he thinks that it's, he thinks that the way he invented it was perfect. But he, I don't think he foresaw, you know, there was one or two superannuation accounts that were $400 million, you know, that sort of yes. money. Now, that, that, is, that is clearly someone who has saved up that amount of money in a tax-effective way. Yep. Now, I honestly believe that, had had Paul Keating been the great man that he was, then he would have been able to foresee that and he should have actually done something about it when he designed the system. Mm. But now we've had to come along, we've had to change it. Now, you know, a lot of it has a lot of it has already changed. 
you know, the Tories did actually pull apart a hell of a lot of the superannuation savings. They did. He said, oh, hello, there's Shay. He recently came out and said the accord is no longer serving. It's okay, fair enough. You know, they did actually reduce some of the superannuation tax concessions that were involved in that sort of thing. So that that has already been largely pulled apart, but they didn't actually take it that step further and actually tax the very well-to-do. Yeah, there's been various changes over the years. I can remember there were these post 83 or post 86 contributions treated yeah, differently to pre 83. And there's been a bunch of them. It's interesting that they didn't sit down at the beginning and think, how will the rich exploit this new rule? And, you know, really, it's like solar panels when they were so generous with solar at 53 cents. And mm-hmm. really, nobody. Nobody sat down and did the sums and went, you know what, there'll be a bunch of smart people out there with a fair bit of spare money who are going to just load up their roofs and their carports with solar panels well, and, and was, this is what's going to happen. Wasn't there a cap on that? Well, initially, no caps, no. Right, So okay. it was an overly generous scheme where people in government didn't sit down and just think, if somebody's got a lot of money, how can they use this to their advantage mm-hmm. lawfully. And Super was one of those where they've been tinkering with it for a while and this is yet another sort of tinkering that's been necessary. Ga- Game um, of My- Mates argues that it was actually to neuter the union movement that um, Super was brought in. Yes. Well, I think so as well. I think it, it did neuter it. I think actually Hawke and Keating actually did a lot of neoliberal type of Stuff there, really? No, they did. They did bugger the power the, of the unions. I don't they, think there's any, sort of there's did, did, any doubt about that. Yeah, and we're going to show a chart later on on terms of strike action and industrial disruption and how it's disappeared from our economy, kind of in line yeah. with when wages stopped growing. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, the, the argument is that the unions now own shares. Yeah. And therefore, they are unwilling to take the strike action that puts the shares they are managing and therefore the fees they're earning at risk. Yes. Well, I think that's probably an argument more for the industry super funds that are... Now, the union movement doesn't benefit from those industry super funds. They are actually designed to benefit only the members of the of the fund. Mm. But the unions are behind them. So I think you've and got a reasonable argument fees. there. Sorry? And the unions take management fees. I don't know that the unions take management fee. I think, or, or at least, the super funds have input into the unions. Well, I think the unions actually have to. I think the unions provide fifty percent of the directors, don't they? But yeah, they might provide members of the board. Yeah, yeah I think they're still under an obligation to manage the fund for the welfare of the uh, members. Sorry, but. It, it's it's more that the unions are less likely to take strike action if they believe that their members' superannuation is going to be at risk. Yeah. Look, by the way, <laughs> this is not a podcast for financial advice, although no, Joel, in the, listen to us. Joel in the chat room has said, I've put all my money in my space shares. So <laughs> hopefully Joel's not running any super funds out there for anyone else. <laughs> Good luck with that one. Good on you, Joel. There's lots of people in the chat room having a good chat. Make your comments. We'll try and introduce them. Eric's there. Tom, the warehouse guy, was there. Tom's saying invest it 
9 to 12% of your income and they lose it. It just depends. You can shop around and, yeah. Okay, so let's just get some facts and figures out there as well. So less than 1% of people have got more than $3 million in super. The average amount, as you said, Scott, oh, for people, who've got, for people who've got at least $3 million, the average for those people is actually 5.8. So the people who are caught by this new change, on average, have $5.8 million in super. Yeah, and we all know what averages are. Yes. So Peter Dutton is against it. He said that it's about introducing new laws. It's, it's basically just another tax. So he's against it. Um, so well, he would be because he's not for anything. He's just against everything. Yes. Well, as described, I think, by the writer in The Guardian, I think it was Murphy who said that Peter Dutton is a Tony Abbott tribute band. So I thought that was a good line. <laughs> All over again. Greg Jericho wrote that the Australia Institute estimates that the cost of the tax concessions for superannuation is on par with the cost of the entire age pension. So, I mean, one of the ideas of super was so that the government wouldn't have to pay the age pension. And it's the tax concessions have reached now the cost of the entire age pension. So that's an interesting statistic. And a couple more statistics for you. Those people with an income above 150000 would be 7% of all individuals, yet... They make up 32% of all personal superannuation contributions. So obviously rich people pour in a lot more money into super than poor people do. That'll make sense. And the share of people with a super fund above 2 million was just 0.5 of a percent, just 80,000 people. And 384 of those were people under age 30. They're doing well. Yeah, see, that's a big money yes. coming from mum and dad, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and those 0.5% of people account for 12% of all superannuation funds held. Wow. The top 0.5% account for 12% of all of the super fund, super fund money held. And uh, the conclusion in this was, much like negative gearing is a tax dodge disguised as a housing policy, too much of superannuation has become a tax dodge disguised as a retirement income policy. I think that sums I, it I up pretty well. How much is self-managed super as compared to industry a, a or super fund? Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, the wealthier no, no, you just, are, the more well, likely you have a self-managed. Yeah, well, and that's what they're saying is that the, the bigger the bigger balances are in the self-managed funds. So it's yeah. it's clearly a tax dodge that they've set up for themselves. So. Yeah, it's one of those things. I've got absolutely no problem at all with what the government has said. Now, before you go into thick spins, my good friend Pat's out there. I'm sure you'll know exactly who I'm talking about, but I've used your nickname rather than your real name to protect your innocence. You're never going to have $3 million in a superannuation account, so there's nothing for you to complain about. Right. And I'm sure that we can expect you to vote Labor next time. Right. See, like these Americans who are just temporarily disadvantaged millionaires, mm-hmm. no. the very poor <laughs> Americans who continue to vote for policies that enhance no, the lifestyles of the like rich that. because he's they figure like one that. day they will be rich. He's not like that. He's he's very realistic about 
where he's going to get to or anything like that. But, uh, you know, he has said to me before that he wants to die on the pension and he was going to pour all his money into his, into his extravagant home in a beachfront place so that he can still collect the pension. Mm. I thought to myself, okay. <laughs> mm. More disclosures. Alison, she's in the chat room. She declares she's not the one person who has over $500 million in super. Well, so she's no good for a loan then. No, so one. Um, reactions around the place. Zali Stegel said people make many decisions and saving choices during their working life, like salary sacrificing, and this should not now be punished with a knee-jerk policy by the Albanese government. For those of you who are wondering whether the Zali Stegels of the world were really just, just liberals, old-fashioned liberals with, <laughs> you don't want to get. To, you have no interest in your bedroom and have a climate-friendly agenda, but otherwise, economically and tax-wise, true blue liberals, really. So that's Zali Stegels, yeah. So <laughs> Lennon Hardbottom, he's disclosed that it is him, in fact. That's got the $500 million balance, yeah. <laughs> oh, good on you, Landon. Yep. And another one here, not relevant to this. Let me just see if there's one more. Oh, yeah. And uh, I like this person, this, this Twitter handle. The handle of this person is... Participation trophy wife. That's a good one. <laughs> Writes, if you're worried about $3 million not being enough for retirement, spend less on coffee and smashed avocado. Oh, there's a, that's a good theory. Right. I liked what Je- Jeff, Greg Jericho said. He said, oh, bless Zali Stegall. Suggesting a $3 million cap could hurt those who have done the salary sacrificing. Next, next we'll be told this cap could hit nurses and teachers. Indeed. Yeah, isn't That's the salary sacrifice only if you're earning under a certain amount? No, I, I, I'd do it. You know, it's just. No. Okay. Anyway, I don't think. I don't and, earn more than $150,000, but it's just one of those things. If you, you used to get, you, you used to get a much bigger contribution if you earned less than, oh, I think it was $50,000, right. the government would match your contribution. Yeah. That's but that I has now gone that. by the wayside. You know, salary sacrificing, there's no, there's nothing magical about it. You just got to say to them that you want extra super money put aside. So, mm. Okay. Right. Let's talk about inflation, unemployment, and the Reserve Bank policy and wages and, and tie all this in together in a coherent fashion. And first of all, before we get on to some of the commentary that I've got from some articles, let's just look at some figures. And the first one there is a chart showing what the real, what the largest real wage drop in Australian history looks like. By the way, dear listener, if you're listening to the audio of this podcast, then these charts will be like chapter images. So if you're listening on the iTunes app or most other good apps, I'll show the chapter images. So look at your phone. And there's a half a chance that these charts and images that we're going to be talking about will just appear on your phone, which will be pretty handy. So there you go. That's chapters. Now, so you can see that the real wages in Australia have plummeted since May of 2020, especially. So there's a chart there that shows that. Quite an amazing jump. Meanwhile, I've got a chart showing ASX 200. And Scott, since early 2020... The share yeah. market increase till today is 60%. I yeah. read that in an article. I thought, that can't be right. 
And then I looked it up and I was, it is. But, so, but hang on, that's disingenuous because there was a full beginning of 2020. Yeah, so massive drop. So it's regained. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. at the beginning of lockdown, it, it plummeted. Yes. And it's yeah. regained what it lost. Yes. But it's quite it an has. extraordinary thing to get a 60% increase in essentially three years. Amazing increase. So... There is that. You're right. What's the other chart I've got here that might be relevant before we go on? Yeah, that, oh. is, just, that is just the prices of shares more yes. so than what their profits have been that are under the shares. True. But it's usually a reflection. of Yeah, it's usually a reflection unless you're the Commonwealth Bank and you announce a record profit and the next day every bastard sells them down so you go down below 100 bucks a share. Indeed. But anyway. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Disgruntled Commonwealth Bank shareholder. So... What we've got, dear listener, is our Reserve Bank and central banks around the world worrying about inflation, which has definitely been the case. There's been inflation that we haven't seen for a while. And the response by our Reserve Bank and other central banks has been to increase interest rates. And the first question is, well, why do they do that? Why do you increase interest rates to somehow combat inflation? And the answer is that the theory is that by increasing interest rates, you will dampen the economy such that, well, backing up just a bit, Reserve Bank and central banks have been talking about this wage price spiral, essentially that wages go, are going up, as a consequence, prices have to be increased to take account of the increased wage costs. Because of the increased prices, people demand higher wages, which leads to increased prices, which leads to higher wages and increased prices spiralling upwards is, is the theory that central banks have basically been working on. And so to counteract that wages price spiral, the theory is that if you increase rates, you will dampen the economy to the point where this will start putting people off, start laying them off, and jobs will be harder to get. People will be worried about losing their job and that they will therefore not ask for price for wage increases. And that then is a circuit breaker to stop the wages price spiral. And this is all part of a, a theory called the Phillips curve. And the problem with that is that around the world, they are looking at unemployment figures and finding that there is record low unemployment. So there's still not enough workers out there, despite the fact that interest rates have been going higher and higher. So the people who subscribe to this theory, we need to dampen the economy to increase unemployment to make people scared so that they won't ask for wage increases. Looking at the situation, they're going, gee, we just need to increase the interest rates even higher then. Really crush the economy so that people will be fired or worried about their job and hence not ask for a wage increase. And so that's the risk we face, dear listener, is that, that central banks are, are relying on this theory which could be complete BS. And if you look at the world, and we've discussed before about unemployment figures, how it's kind of meaningless as a figure, 
there's a danger that these guys just don't know what they're talking about, that they're locked into this old style of economic theory. And if they keep going with what they want to do and increased interest rates, they're going to subject us to a recession that we didn't have to have. Scott or have. Joe, what do you think of all? right above it. Well, Robert Reich argues that we don't have a labour shortage. Yes. We have a shortage of jobs paying a decent wage right. that people actually want. Right. So people aren't taking the shit jobs anymore. Yeah. And it's like during lockdown when, or sorry, just after lockdown when we had, didn't have Gazin to work, you know, slave labour. Yep. And, and locals were begged to come and do it. Yep. And the locals went and did it and went, hang on. Sure, I'm earning this great amount of money, but they're taking half of it off me in rent. You know, my actual money at the end of the week in my pocket is less than if I was on the dole. Mm. Why yeah, would I travel to outback Queensland to go earn less than I get on the dole? Yes. Yeah. Scott, Scott, theories of the Reserve Banks, Reserve Bank and Central Bank's going to yeah, ruin us with their, I, uh, with their yeah, theories? I, uh, I agree with what you're saying there because it is based on that economist from the 1950s in New Zealand, something rather Phillips. You know, he was the one that first said that you've got this wages price spiral. Now, it's one of those things that I would have thought they would have moved on from by now, but apparently not. Now, mm. you know, I really agreed with Sally McManus the other day the other day, she sent an email to us and she said that we are living in a cost of, cri- cost of living crisis, but it's got nothing to do with wages. It's got everything to do with the gouging that big co- that companies are doing. Mm. You know, in, in the I, chat room, Shailene says, doesn't account for supply chain problem or company profits. Shay, yeah, good exactly. comment. You should be on a podcast, Shay. Mm, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, I, keep I, going, I, Scott. I, talking about company profits, did, didn't Qantas just post a, a, a slight profit? Yes. I did. Qantas yeah. made an enormous profit. And, now, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, their subsidiary Jetstar is, well, it hasn't fallen out of the sky yet, but it's threatening to, you know. Mm. Yep. It appears that the service and maintenance has been let slide. Yeah. Qantas made a profit oh. of $1.43 billion for the half year. So just remembering that they benefited by $2.3 billion in handouts from the Morrison government. And at the time, the Transport Workers Union said, maybe we should be taking that as equity rather than just giving it to Qantas. Of course, Morrison was never going to do that. Apparently, other governments around the world did. We could be yes. at least half owners, the Australian public, of Qantas, but alas, we're not. So we gave away $2.3 billion and they are now rorting us with a hefty plane fares and earning $1.43 billion, which would be okay if we were the shareholders of that, but we're not. So mm-hmm. yeah, another missed opportunity. But the other ones who are making big money at the moment are the banks. And so let me see, Commonwealth Bank reported a record profit, $5.15 billion for the six months to December. Now, Scott and Joe... Was it because the Commonwealth Bank has suddenly found ways of being more efficient, of growing their business and exploring new markets, of, of amazing initiatives and new ideas that have, have created this new wealth? No, it wasn't. It was because over their employees and their customers. No, what they did was they, they have increased the margin on what they're making on their money. So 
you know, they're borrowing money at the, essentially the same rate, which is lower than what they charge people, which is fine. But with the Reserve Bank jacking interest rates up, the amount they've had to pay out to their depositors hasn't gone up as quickly. Yep. But, you know, as soon as, as soon as the interest rates go up, as soon as the interest rates go up by the Reserve Bank, then mortgage rates go up immediately. But the deposit rates, they take a lot longer to catch up. They like and the gap, the gap between what they pay for deposits and what they charge for loans has got wider and wider. Yes. So that's why so the Commonwealth Bank is making all that sort of money. And all the banks do. It's easy to make money as a bank in a, in a period where you've gone from record low interest to sort of You, you didn't normal need to qualify interest. that. Yeah. It's easy as a bank to make money. <laughs> yes, because you've essentially given a license to do precisely that. Make money yeah. via a simple ledger transaction. That is exactly right. Just in this article, it says, Australia's biggest bank made no pretense of claiming its performance was all a result of better serving its customers. Rather, it implicitly acknowledged it was screwing them, saying that its inflated bottom line was in large measure, quote, driven by a recovery in net interest margins in the rising rate environment. Put another way, as central bank lifted official rates, the Commonwealth Bank took advantage by jacking up the amount it charged its borrowers more than what it paid its depositors. So... You're quite correct there, Scott. Very good. Other also big announcements of profits. Coles up 17% on the previous year. Woolworths up 14%. Don't know about over here, but certainly in the UK, the big supermarkets got in trouble because they were playing their suppliers up to two years in arrears. So effectively, they've been sitting on the profits for two years before they go on and pay their suppliers. Wow. How do suppliers, how do they survive? Yeah, just see what else I've got here. So, yeah, so when the Reserve Bank raises interest rates, there's a section of the economy that finds that a stimulus, in fact, rather than a depressing effect, which the bank is in theory trying to do in order to cancel people's jobs. So it's a really blunt instrument that the Reserve Bank has, remembering that they're unelected officials and, in my view, the functions of a Reserve Bank should be revert back to the government of the day. You should. No, I don't agree with that. I think what? you've got to maintain an independent board. Oh, because they're doing such a good job, Scott? No, not because they're doing such a good job, because you've just got to keep them independent of government. Why? Why? Because if you've got, you got them in the government, if you've got the government making the decision, they're going to be more inclined to do exactly what the public wants, which right now would be to keep interest rates low. Sounds like democracy. Yeah, I know it's democracy, but then we could end up with the whole thing going out of control again. But, but the, the see, we've got a Reserve Bank who says our priority is inflation and we don't give a yeah. shit about people being employed. Yeah. And maybe the public says, well, actually, we'd rather... Well, that's why I think we've got to have a board made up with a larger group of people. Well, not a larger group of people, but a different cross-section of people mm. because, you you know, you used to have, you used to when, you used to have union representation on the board. That's now gone by the wayside. Mm. You know, I think that if you had unions, if you had a union representative on the board, if you had an employer representative on the board and you had a, if you had an academic economist 
and then you had a market economist, and then they elected a they they then they elected the head of the board. I think that would be better rather than the board the head of the board being appointed by the federal government. So we just let the oligarchs choose the board members. No, you wouldn't. The, you wouldn't. You, the board members would still be appointed by the government. Mm-hmm. But I think that if the government had that sort of idea. And they, and then you know, I don't know how many members are on the board. So you've got seven members on the board. So they'd appoint all seven, and then they had to, then they had to appoint a head of the board from that. Then that would be preferable than what it is currently. Mm. We did a story on a guy who was a member of the Reserve Bank of Australia and how difficult he found it to get information and to, to sort of work against the prevailing zeitgeist. That was sort of 18 months, two years ago. I might try and find that one. So just a couple more comments on this before we move on. Rod Sims, former, hair, former chair of Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, points out Australia's got a lot of monopolies and oligopolies compared to a lot of other countries. So two main supermarkets, three main energy retailers, three telecommunications players, four banks, they all act in yeah, unison. There's, there's only one ACCC. I mean, yes. where's the competition there? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a monopoly. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Good one, Joe. And then here's another one. This is from a guy, Warwick McKibben, Professor of Economics, ANU Crawford School. And he says, Reserve Bank spends far too much time worrying about workers' pay. Even if wages were to increase faster, he says, it would have a much smaller impact on inflation than the RBA thinks. This is because the share of labour in Australia's gross output of goods and services has been widely overestimated. The RBA assumption is that when Australia produces something, labour accounts for 65% of the inputs and capital accounts for the remaining 35%. Yeah, so... He's saying the RBA assumes labour is 65% of the input cost of stuff. In fact, the globalised world where so much of inputs into what we produce comes from elsewhere, domestic labour only accounts for about 18% of inputs. So, McKibben adds, you can get 82% of inflation coming from things outside the labour market or the Australian labour market. So that's the bigger picture of what's driving inflation. It's not local labour, in a sense. That's an interesting idea, Scott. Worrying so too much about wages. We should move our production to an even cheaper source <laughs> of slave labour. No, no, but we, we should not that. worry about wages increasing prices because ultimately it's a very small component of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, so. They probably had an argument for it when Australia used to make virtually everything. But, you know, those days are gone. You know, you, you can't, you know, I had to move heaven and earth to find an Australian-made toothpaste the other day. You know, it's one of those things. You just don't. Sorry, you were looking for Australian-made Australian toothpaste, toothpaste. Like a Dick yeah. Smith-type quest for Aussie-made. Well, I did. Yes, right. I did. Just and had I, in your head you wanted an Aussie-made toothpaste. Well, I did. So I went through and, you know, I have... Dear listener, I have gone through and I have upgraded my, I have graded, up, have upgraded everything in my bathroom, and so it's Australian made. So it's just one of those things. I found it bloody difficult to find stuff that was actually made in Australia. 
Can you get a so my toothbrush? A page on the website of Australian made products that Scott recommends. <laughs> but can you get an Australian made toothbrush? I haven't looked for an Australian made toothbrush. You know, I've still got a hell of a lot of toothbrushes over here. So, yeah, couldn't tell you. Okay. Anyway, now, of course, the one thing that would cut inflation is a super profits tax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Now, if they had a super profits tax, then that would actually that would actually go a long way to keeping the bastards in check with their price increases. You know what? Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe they would just charge the higher prices. It's just the profit from it would end up in the hands of the Australian government. Prices would still be high, wouldn't they? Yeah, but then surely if the Australian government has more money to spend that yes. feeds back into spending Subsidizing at something levels, else. which goes back into the pockets of ordinary workers. Yes. But my point is technically yeah. the prices would still be high. It's just that the profit from it would come to us rather than rather exactly. to the corporations. And bear in mind, dear listener, so much of Australian, so many much of Australian corporations are foreign owned. So when we're talking about these profits, there is a chart there which shows the green. How much is going offshore? Yeah, on these various companies, the sort of teal-coloured bar is US investors and the orange-yellowish is Australian investors, and this is the top 20 companies in Australia. And essentially so much of our big companies is actually owned by US investors. And so the, the first two were Australian government that got spun off. Yep, Commonwealth Tastra Government and CSL. Was. Mm. Yeah, Telstra was, got sold off, although that's mostly Australian-owned. Yeah, probably because of the way it was sold off, maybe. But a huge percentage of Australian... I don't know what happened to my... I did actually have the numbers Interesting ResMed. So ResMed makes CPAP and other devices. They're down the bottom. Another mostly Australian-owned. Yeah. So if you got sleep apnea they make mm. devices for that oh. so i presume that they're australian market mm. and overseas investors just aren't interested yeah australia's 20 biggest companies 15 are majority owned by us-based investors and three more are at least 25 percent us owned so all four of our big banks are majority owned by american investors so the story we we're telling earlier of how easy it was for banks to make money in a market where the interest rates are going up, all four of our big banks are majority owned by American investors. The Commonwealth Bank, it's more than 60% owned by American investors. Ah, it's depressing. <laughs> and the biggest ownership is BHP. It's 70-something oh, yeah. percent as US owned. Yeah, indeed. All right. We'll move on to any other topics. You guys done with that one? You okay with that? Yeah, that's rather depressing, actually, to see how much of the country is owned by the Yanks. Yeah, it is. Okay, and and we'll have to do one at some stage on these companies, BlackRock and others, that you don't hear about often. So um, uh, let's see. Alison says Grant's toothpaste it's, is Australian-owned. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I bought Sedell. Is that owned by Grant's? don't know. I couldn't tell so, you. Anyway, yeah. so Alison, if you wouldn't mind answering that question, that'd be great. Yeah. Tom, the warehouse guy says Woolworths are the only store and they have stock of it in five stores only in New South Wales. Who would have thought that our 
chat room with such experts on Australian-made toothpaste. Good on you guys. It's one of those things. I just mentioned it and I didn't realise I started a conversation like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Very good. So, okay. Oh, and John You'll says. You'll have to order it online and get it shipped. Yeah. No, I, I'm managing to buy it in Woolies, but I couldn't buy it in, I couldn't buy it in Carl's, but I could buy it in Woolies. Hmm. Just getting back to, John says, Scott's transport went under on Monday. They were a huge supplier to Coles and Woolworths. I think it's Colesworth. I think he's saying Coles and Woolworths. So Scott's mm. transport went under. Maybe. Yep, did. Yep, supplier struggling. Okay. So keep up the comments in the chat room. We'll try and get to those. I mentioned there's chapters that we use in this podcast. So if you like a topic, you can look at the chapters and Head back to it and listen to it again. Or if you don't like a topic, you can skip over it. And there is a newsletter. If you go onto the website, ironfistfellclub.com.au, you can subscribe to the newsletter, which is basically during the week as I find articles and sort of give them a little star to look at later, That will those articles will appear in the newsletter. So if you're looking for a, a news feed, that's a good one. Donations, you can do that. Joe, here's your chance for your funny... <laughs> QR code, Patreon or PayPal. Do that. Descript editing. I run the audio for this that appears on the podcast through an editor called Descript, which gets rid of the ums and ahs. It's pretty good. It's a little bit choppy at times, but generally takes out five or six minutes of stuff from a podcast. If you don't like that, then you can listen to the YouTube version because that doesn't happen on that one. And if you're a PayPal donor, the show notes are available in a Dropbox. Let me know and I can give you the link. Otherwise, people with Patreon, they get these show notes. And the episode today is going to be a big one in terms of show notes. So, so yeah, that's all sort of admin type stuff. And right, time for a bit of humour. Now, oh, dear listener, last week. So I was in Sydney and I had a laptop. We're all sorted, had all the necessary cords. We're talking like this beforehand. Everything's going swimmingly. I'm in an, a hotel with an amazing internet, like 500 down and 300 up, like crazily fast. And uh, But then when we started the podcast, because I was scrolling through a Word document, that was enough for my computer to have a heart attack. No, no, no. You're scrolling through a 3,000-page Word document. Let's, well, there let's is be... that. <laughs> so I've since changed now where I, I just I don't have the uh, all previous 390-odd, 370-odd episodes on the Word document that I use <laughs> during the podcast. It's a shorter one now, so I won't gonna publish it or something crunch like that, my yeah. computer like that again. So we did our best, but there was some stuff there, and I decided, look, I was going to try and edit it and try and produce it, but in the end... It just didn't work out. So we're going to play. We're going to deal with a few things that were discussed in that episode that ended up just not being published. So if you're in the chat room during that, you're going to hear a few repeats of a few things. Sorry about that, but hey, it's going to be an extra long episode to keep Shay out of the Shark Tank because both Shay and Landon are in the chat room at the moment. So got to keep them happy. So okay, let me just see here. So. One of these videos, which was, oh yeah, we'll start with this one. So, and Scott, I asked you whether you had an electric car yet, and you don't no, have one yet. I don't have you'd an like car yet. to get one, maybe, or not? 
Well, not, not that keen. It's probably something that I end up down when I end up living closer to home. I wouldn't mind. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So this is Carmela Harris talking about electric buses, and I'll just play a bit of what she has to say. No exhaust, no diesel smell. The bus has Wi-Fi and even USB outlets next to every seat. I mean, come on, imagine. You can charge your phone on your way home from work. That's good stuff. Just a heartbeat away from the biggest job on the planet, Scott. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit of a concern, isn't it? You know, she was getting really very excited over something like that. Hmm. On the USB charging port... Yes. I've got a hybrid rental and it doesn't have the USB charging port in it. I was very disappointed. Hmm. That is disappointing. Because I went to plug my phone in on the drive up here. Yep. And uh, there was a 12 volt cigar socket. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I pulled the instruction manual out and it said it's an option and it's in the center box, center console. Yep. And I checked in there, and no, the option wasn't fitted. So you had to get the cigarette lighter adapter type thing if you wanted to charge your phone. Yeah. Right. Wow. There we go. Okay. Just mm. surprised in this day and age. Yeah, that is surprising. Yeah. What else have I got here? <laughs> yeah. Sharon says, I wonder how excited she was to learn China has spy balloons. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because let's face it, Carmel, the bus you're getting so excited about would have made, been made in China, I would have thought. Yeah. Okay, you know, forgive me, dear listener, if I happen to have a predisposition to, to an interest in all things satanic and demonic, but, you know, you've got to watch out. There's going to be demons in Congress, apparently. So here's what a, an American preacher had to say about this. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Here comes the glory. Here comes the glory. It's coming on in. And the glory will invade the halls of Congress. And the glory is going to come in like a mist right there in the middle of it. And demon-possessed congressmen are going to manifest right there in front of everybody. You're going to see some of them react. And don't be surprised if suddenly there's there's a session of Congress on television and it's the same old boring sound with the gavel and all this stuff going on. And all of a sudden in the back you hear somebody say... And all because the anointing's going to come on the floor and it's going to draw these demons out into the public for everybody to see. Don't be, don't be surprised when that happens. My yeah, favorite bit is when he goes, don't be surprised. He goes, <laughs> For some reason, I find that incredibly funny. It's a sad thing to see mental illness affect someone, though, isn't it? Ah, are these guys mentally ill or are they just selling stuff? And they, uh, I mean, or are they on acid? Yes. Are they just selling stuff? It's, you know, how much of this is conniving snake oil salesmen for seeking donations from gullible people? And how well, much is, that wouldn't hard surprise me. Mm. So here's another one. This was sent by yet another pink affair over there in Western Australia. Recognize him. Yeah. I don't is even want to give you his name. talking about his private jet? Yes. Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland. Okay. Hear it. All right. So, look, dear listener, it's either this or the Governor-General's wife singing. So, 
probably no, we did not want to hear, oh, hear, right. hear again. <laughs> Anything but that. Okay, Anything but that will go with this one. All right. This is a good one if you are watching. Just the face of this guy is quite incredible. And I prayed about it, and I thought, I'm not missing that dedication in Jerusalem without the airplane that we have that I bought from Tyler Perry. And I didn't pay anywhere. And Tyler's one of the greatest guys. He made it. He made that airplane so cheap for me, I couldn't help but buy it. Well, my question then, well, 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 okay, all right, but I want to get to the demons because people are very concerned about that comment. Give me a chance here, Inside Edition. Okay. I love your eyes. Do you ever use your private jets to go visit your vacation homes, for example? Yes, I do. Okay. Again, getting back to the comment, you said that you don't like to fly commercial because you don't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. Do you really believe that human beings are demons? No, I do not. And don't you ever say I did. <laughs> we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. I think that's the thing for this podcast. We wrestle not with, wasn't flesh and blood, but principality of power. Yes. That's, I think that's going to be byline. <laughs> his reaction there, you go, is that going sane? He's... Yeah, I, I had serious team. doubts at that point. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I think that she was she was quizzing him about the purchase of his third private jet. Yes. Well and whether he really needed it. Well the guy he bought it off made it so cheap he couldn't help but buy it, Joe. Yeah, I mean who amongst us has not been in that position where the price on the plane was well, so cheap. Price just, plane is just so cheap. We just had, had to buy it. it. I, I, I think it was Louis Theroux who went out. Somebody went out to try to interview him. And they drive up to the ranch and get turned away. And then the local police turn up and basically try to arrest them for trespass. Mm -hmm. It's impressive. Yes. He, because he lives in small town America, he's basically loved by the local sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. And he just has to pick up the phone. And if you cross him, you're in trouble. Yeah. Wouldn't doubt it at all. So... All right, so that was a bit of comedic relief in between foreigners owning our banks and screwing us all over, as we've described. Now, we mentioned again, this is, we spoke about this one last week, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. So I can't help myself. I have to revisit this topic to do it some justice. And that was that, let me just see, uh, is to do with Seymour Hirsch and the uh, revelation about America having blown up the Nord Stream pipeline. And so the thing about this is there was an article from Mint Press News and basically talking about the lack of coverage in American media. Like this is a huge story, respected journalist giving a coherent explanation of what happened. Even if you thought it was BS, it would be something that you would cover in mainstream media. And what they found was that they analysed 20 of the most influential publications in the United States. So they are ABC News, Bloomberg News, Business Insider, BuzzFeed, CBS News, CNBC, CNN, Forbes, Fox News, The Huffington Post, MSNBC, NBC News, The New York Post, The New York Times, NPR, People Magazine, Politico, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post. All of those collectively in a one-week period, 
after the revelation came out, all of them collectively could only produce five, sorry, four mentions of the report. There was a 166-word mini-report in Bloomberg, a five-minute segment on Tucker Carlson, a 600-word roundup in the New York Post, and a shrill Business Insider attack article. And that was it for one of the largest stories, and it's even more incomprehensible. Well, it's not incomprehensible. It's just an indictment on the media because they all get a feed from Reuters, and Reuters was pummeling them with stories, had given them 14 separate reports that they could just take, copy and paste, and all of those organisations actively rejected each and every one of those 14 Reuters reports to do basically no reporting at all. So, look, Scott, you were a bit on the fence as to whether Seymour Hersh's argument was a good one or not or trustworthy or whether to believe it or not, but the fact is you don't have to believe it. It's just it's clearly a big story and for the American public to not be exposed to the story And I agree with you on that. I Mm. agree with you on that. The whole thing was I was on the fence as to whether or not the Yanks did actually do it. Mm. I concluded that, you know, the the only real beneficiary was Ukraine. Who's the only one that can actually pull the trigger and get something like this done? The Yanks. Now, I believe that Joe pointed out that the Norwegians probably had a hand in it too. So, you know, but the Norwegians wouldn't do anything without the Yanks' approval. So, you know, I agreed that the cover of the cover of NATO exercises and all that sort of stuff would have given them the perfect opportunity to lay their device that they then just detonated a later date. So I concluded that it was probably the Yanks that did it. As to whether or not the Russians did it, I also concluded that the Russians wouldn't bother. All they'd do is just turn the tap off and raise the middle finger to Germany if they wanted to. Good on you, Scott. The other thing to add to that is the main beneficiary wasn't the Ukrainians. It was the Americans because guess who's selling the energy now to the Germans? Well, well they're selling the Americans for natural gas to the Germans. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I also agree that they're getting a hell of a lot more from Norway, aren't they? Yes. They're getting increased supply from Norway as well. Yeah. So. So it's just one of those things. It's Anyway, so that was just interesting in that the lack of coverage in the US media. So just on the Russian-Ukraine war, this is how Lindsey Graham, a US senator, maybe congressman, what's Lindsey Graham? I can't remember. But this is what he had to say about he likes the way that things are set up at the moment. I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. There we go. He's, he likes the way it's set up because it's, it's a fight to the last Ukrainian. What, from an American point of view, what could possibly yeah, be better? Yeah, what's the Yeah. So he was honest there, I think. Likes the way that's set up. And look, it's not a coincidence because he was also asked about Taiwan and what's happening there. And we're going to strangle the Russian economy as long as they're the largest state sponsor of terrorism. So if you want to receive what Putin did, try to go into Taiwan. They're going to fight to the last man in Taiwan. They're going to fight to the last man in Taiwan. 
complete strategy. <laughs> Conduct these proxy wars and and get your vassals to fight to the last man. Yeah, I don't think that the Yanks would be able to sit there and actually do the same thing in Taiwan as what they've done in Ukraine. They're going to try to. Well, they might try, but I think they can get themselves dragged into it. I suspect that China is probably better prepared than Russia was. Exactly, and that is the whole point. That's that's why I think that China is China is going to be a, a far tougher adversary than than Russia is. I, I had a wonderful quote. Russia had invested in a large modern army. The problem was the bits that were large weren't modern, and the bits that were modern weren't large. <laughs> Russians are going okay. They're not like, going the, okay, Trevor. They've had their ass kicked. They are kicked. not. You know, we, we all expected the, this to be by the end of March last given, year. And what it is, given and the size and strength of the Russian not. army, they have done incredibly poorly. They have uh, done incredibly poorly. They'll keep Crimea. They'll keep the Donbass. Yeah, but, you know, that, that might be and okay if you got them to a negotiation table and you actually got them to sign over. You know, if you could do that sort of thing, then that would be fine. But I don't think anyone could trust Vladimir Putin again. Well, you know, it, it's mm. just one of those things. Well, he has proven Putin, to be a megalomaniac Putin, thug. He he promised to respect the sovereign the sovereign borders of Ukraine, and he didn't. When and the Ukrainians U- handed over, let me let me play devil's advocate. When the Ukrainians, the, the Ukraine promised to abide by the Minsk agreement. Yeah. So, you know, they were bombing people in they, the Donbass. They handed over the nuclear weapons. They so, did hand over the nuclear weapons. But the Minsk agreement, they, they did not agree to. They were bombing people in the Donbass region and they were clearly saying, we'll just want to go slow because we've got no intention of complying with it. So, you know, you can look at it from both ways. There's fault on both sides here. I think there's more fault on the Russian side than there is on the Ukrainian side. Yeah. Fault all around. Anyway, there's there's more than enough there's more than enough blame for both sides, but I just think to myself that you know you'd have to. I think the lion's share of fault is on the Russian side more so than on the Ukrainian side. Mm-hmm. You know it, exactly, and you know I agree with Shay there. She says I highly recommend in Russia if you're listening listening on the ABC Listen app, which verifies what Joe just said. Yeah, listen to Russia if you're listening. Yeah, it's a bit of it is very good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, right. and there it is, Jay Lane. She said, she, Shay just said then it was supposed to be a three-day three-day capture. It failed. You know, they they had a plan to take it. They had a plan to take out Vladimir Vladimir Zelensky in the first three days. That failed. Mm. You know, they were going to try and decapitate the Ukrainian leadership. That failed. Mm. And you know, and like like you know, when he when he's on the phone to Joe Biden the day it happened, he, you know. And Joe Biden said, look, we can have a plane there in a couple of hours. And he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Hmm. So that was a very brave man that stood up to him. Well, well if, if people think that the Ukrainians are going to prize the Russians out of their current positions. No, not, not now. Happen. But, you know, not now. But, you know. They're going to hold that territory. They're going to hold that territory now. Well, the, the, big, the big question will be how the Russians perform with their impending offensive. If they perform just as poorly as what they have after the first 12 months, mm. then after that you might actually get the bastard to a negotiation table. But, you know, it's one of those very big buts as to how well they're going to perform. 
Yeah, terrible oh, images of. It was probably uh, Finland all over again. Mm. Yeah, where they said, "Oh, we we just need this tiny sliver of land." Yeah, and when the, the the intention was, you know, invading the full country, and they got their nose bloodied. Mm-hmm. It's looking very much like trench warfare from World War One. Some of the images that you see. So yeah, for sure. Dug in and just carnage for, you know, really. Zelensky should just surrender those strips and be done with it. Like the yeah, lives but then of he's going to be carving up more yeah, of his own but, country. It, yeah. it's, it's one and, of those things you can't, is, you can't continue to appease a dictator. You know, we've learned that lesson in the... Landbridge to Sevastopol, which is where you know a fair amount of the attack on Ukraine came from this time. All it would mean is that he can build up his forces in Ukraine, in in Crimea. They were reliant on that bridge that the Ukrainians blew up, and they had big problems getting infrastructure, getting army, getting logistics into that place. If you give them that land bridge through the Donbass, then they can build up a huge army from the south, attack from the north, attack from Belarusia. It just gives them the the launching post for next time to wipe out Ukraine. Mm. And Zelensky is never going to accept that because he knows that all you're doing is buying time for the Russians to build up for the next offensive. Which mm. is precisely the point that was made this morning on a podcast I was listening to. I think it was ABC Daily, something like that. I was listening to that. And Sam, whatever her name, was interviewing an expert. And he said exactly that point that Joe just said, you know, that you've just got to wait and if they, if he, if he, if you give him enough time, he will use the time to build up his army to go in again. Well, Zelensky could use the time to, to rather than try and reclaim lost territory, build up defence to stop the further invasion beyond the, the current skirmish line. But, yeah, but, if, but then what, if you allow them, at least if you allow them that land of, bridge, hmm. then you get attacked on multiple fronts. Hmm. And it becomes a lot harder to defend. Mm. Well, he's just burning human lives at the moment. So he's running out Zelensky of Ukrainians. Is... Zelensky is running out of yeah. Ukrainians faster than yeah. Russians are running out of Russians. Yeah, I know. So. And the Russians are the Russians are just grabbing people off the street and saying you're in the army now. So were the Ukrainians. Yeah, I know the Ukrainians were. So they both are. But they were yeah, attacked. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's that? They were attacked. Said, but they, they were attacked. Yeah. yeah. Their, their, their country was under threat. The Russians weren't. Well, were they under threat or not? Uh, and, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think realistically the only way this is going to end is by Putin being toppled. Mm. I think it's going to end on a stalemate where they are right now. So I think that's where it's going to end. And the Americans will just keep pouring weapons and money in there and I think it'll just be stuck right where they are now and or maybe russia will proceed even further but i just can't see the ukrainians prizing them out trump will become president in 2024 and will go in and negotiate a peace settlement that's the only man who could do it yeah so but he's tried to negotiate uh, or made suggestions for a settlement and uh, and that was a very very balanced settlement that i thought that i thought was perfectly reasonable which was kind of russia should get out and yeah, Ukraine and then, should not join NATO. And, exactly. And America said, don't be ridiculous. 
Yeah, I know, which I think was entirely reasonable because Ukraine has already said, look, you can forget us joining NATO. They're never going to have us. Yes. All right. That's Ukraine and Russia for the moment. Locally, we've got some polls. Now, this might be a little bit old. There might have been another essential poll since this one, but leaders' favourability ratings. And we've got Anthony Albanese amongst Labor voters is enjoying 75% approval rating. So I'm impressed by the 25% coalition approve of Albanese. Yes, indeed. So I'm worried by the 16% of Labor voters who approve of Peter Dutton, but uh, there you go. Well, so, yeah, that is a big worry. That and, is a concern. Yeah, and 53% of coalition voters approve of Peter Dutton. Who's going to challenge Peter Dutton if there's a challenge? Scott? He's the likely. I don't know. Now, you know, that was they were talking about the, the deputy leader, I can't remember her name, apparently that she's already got herself in a position that she could challenge if, if need be. Mm. But I didn't even know what her name is. Mm. Susan Lee, that's it. Right. So, oh, Susan Lee? Sorry? You're saying Susan Lee is a, is a potential... Leader. Well, is that what you're saying? I th- yeah, Susan Lee. That's what Sh- Shay just said. Now, surely it's one not. of those. She's... No, no, no. It, it's Susan. Right. Yes, because she added an extra S to her name because of numerology. Yes. Exactly. And and anybody who changes their name because of a numerologist deserves the piss taken out of them. Well, Indeed. fair enough. Yeah. It's just the caliber of people on the uh, on the coalition, coalition benches side. Yeah, is is pretty poor. So anyway, look, she was ta- she was touted as a potential leader. Mm. Is it any worse than oh, guy saying he was put there because God wanted him there? Yeah, who said that? Scomo, right? Yeah, uh, just there's nobody who looks like a likely candidate that I can think of. They're all hopeless. Meanwhile, just back to Labor. There was an Australian law reform report came out talking about recommendations with to do with the religious discrimination legislation that's currently in limbo, and it made it made the recommendation that religious schools should not be allowed to preference teachers of a particular faith, and. You know, not discriminate against should not be allowed to discriminate against atheists, and of course there was a big uproar from the religious groups about that. Yeah, and, didn't they lose their mind? Yeah, and in response to a question about the controversy on Tuesday, the prime minister told Labor's caucus that quote We made our position clear a long time ago that faith based schools can employ people of their own faith. Now before the election. Labor was committed to protecting students from discrimination on any grounds and to protect teachers from discrimination at work while maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of their faith in the selection of staff. It's hard to tell exactly what Labor's position is at the moment, but it looks suspiciously like they kind of want to allow religious schools to be able to discriminate when it comes to teachers but not students. Yeah. Not good enough, Labor, if that's the case. Mm. No, it's one of those things. I, you know, I hope Alison's still in the chat room. If you are, Alison, 
congratulations on that latest Courier Mail. Yeah. I just read it today. I'm not sure if it was only just produced today or what have you, but that was really good news. So Alison Cortez has been waging a, well, two or three woman war against the Queensland Education Department over religious instruction, and she seems to be kicking a few goals lately. She's beginning a bit of press in the Courier-Mail yeah. up here, which is no no small feat. So congratulations, Alison. Doing a great job and a little bit of luck in that there just seems to be a reporter at the Courier-Mail. He seems to have it in for him, yeah. He's, he's interested in the topic and yeah. seems to be on the side of the secular side. So yeah. that's, yeah, a, a reporter who is interested in the topic. Alison, you're always welcome to come on the podcast and describe the current situation if you think that it's a good idea, but I can understand if you think that being associated with such a disreputable person as myself <laughs> rules it out. <laughs> I totally get that that might be the case. So just, article tomorrow. Hopefully Ooh. another article tomorrow. So that's good. So, uh, so yeah, you, Alison. You wonder whether the Courier-Mail is just bashing the Labor government. Yeah, I don't know. No, I think it's a journalist with just a genuine interest and he's got the, the capacity and ability oh, to write articles the, that interest him. The editorial hmm. direction. Yeah, I, I, I just get the impression it's just a, a, a journalist with an, an interest who's prepared to write the stories and they're letting him write them for the moment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so there we go. All right, John says, how do we follow your advocacy, Alison? And the answer would be there's the Facebook page for the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools. I reckon you would get most of it there, I think, Alison. If you're not in Queensland, Ferris in New South Wales, South Australia, not sure about Victoria. Hmm. Well, Victoria doesn't have anything to worry about anymore because Andrews has actually moved him out of school time and said you have to. There's always something to worry about. Yeah, I know, but... You know, it's just one of those things. He has done exactly what we've been asking for. And what's happened? Membership, you know, enrolments in these RI classes has plummeted. So, you know, that just proves that the only way these bastards have got any chance of getting it on board is to keep it compulsory. Mm. Well, and so while it was before or after school, guess what? Kids didn't want to do it. So Exactly. Mm-hmm. And parents didn't want to go to the effort of changing right. their lifestyles to... Make sure they went. So, yeah. Oh, John says, I don't do Facebook, sorry, anywhere else. Okay, Alison, in the chat room, you'll have to tell. I'm a bit with John. I have not been on Facebook much in recent times, less frequently, so I miss a lot of things on Facebook these days. Can't be bothered with it. So, right, quick little diversion into French parking lots, dear listener. So the French government passed legislation which is going to legislate so that parking lots have to install solar panels. Uh, So these will be ones which obviously the cars can park underneath so they get shade from the hot sun and the solar panel above collects energy, puts it into the grid. And so just briefly on that, car parks that hold at least 50 cards roughly are going to be subject to this law of having solar paneled canopies installed. And look, it's a good place to do it because maybe while your car is parked at the shopping centre. charge it up. Charge it up. That makes perfect sense. And it's a bit more costly to raise them 
high enough above the ground so you can park a car underneath, but it still makes economic sense. And what they're saying is that the capacity they've estimated, if half of France's parking lots are covered, is to generate between roughly 6 and 11 gigawatts at a cost maximum of about $14 billion. And they've currently got 56 nuclear power plants in they do. France, averaging about a gigawatt per nuclear power plant. So we said before these car parks would generate between 6 and 11 gigawatts, so sort of the equivalent of 6 or 11 nuclear power plants. Total cost would be, as we said, maximum around $14 billion. And in this article, it says that one of the nuclear power plants under construction in Flamanville has ballooned. Oh. To co- to, do you know Flamanville, do you, Joe? Yeah, I used to live opposite it. So if there's I, already a nuclear power station there. They must be building a new, new reactor. So we lived opposite Cap de la Hague, which was the nuclear reprocessing plant, and Flamanville, which was the power station. And the reprocessing plant used to take nuclear waste from all around the world. So the ships would pass Jersey with all the attendant risks to go there to be reprocessed and send the renewed fuel back out to be reused. And you were in, living in the middle of a radioactive hub during your formative yeah. years, Joe. Basically. Explains that's, a lot. That's, that is explaining. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it was cost- it was good when we got the power cable to France because when we got cheap electricity from the French. Yeah, and you could see each other at night time without lights on. Yes. That's good. Anyway, that power plant, Joe, that one power plant is going to cost a balloon to $14 billion. So one nuclear power plant costing $14 billion and we've got car parking, solar system, generating between 6 and 11 nuclear power plants worth of energy for the cost of one. So all around, according to the math in this article. It makes it a hell of a lot cheaper. Yeah. And I like the idea of, obviously, France is a country which doesn't have the wide open spaces that we have here in Australia. So rather than covering up agricultural land or something like that, let's face it, I mean, people talk about the ugliness of, of wind farms, for example, but just... A bitumen car park on its own is a fairly ugly piece of infrastructure and covering it with a solar panel actually makes it more attractive because you've got somewhere cool to park your car underneath the shade. So if all that is correct, it's a good story. Hmm? Heat island effect because all the hot time, all the tarmac heats up in summer Hmm. and raises the average temperature of paved areas. And I wonder if a solar panel that's generating electricity is going to reduce some of that heat. Mm, maybe. So whether you'd, whether you'd actually get less heat gain in the cities in summer because yep. you've got less paved area. Mm, I don't know. A friend of mine does gliding and he does it up at and So when you're gliding, mm-hmm. you're looking for thermals. And as they're flying around looking for a thermal, if they see a patch of farmland that's been recently tilled so the soil's mm-hmm. turned over and if it's a particularly black soil then that's the place for a thermal you head over there with your glider 
And on a hot day, yeah, obviously the heat coming up off the black soil creates thermals for gliders. So, fun fact for you. Right. What happened in the chat room? Did uh, Alison suggest anything other than Facebook? Twitter. What's that? Twitter. Twitter. Ah. And a handle? Did we get that? At QPSSSSS. That's the WordPress website. Alison, what's your Twitter handle for Queensland? There we go. At PSSSS underscore QLD. It's the Twitter. There we go. That's your dude, John. All right. Let's get on to gird our loins and talk about some more controversial topics, which we often leave towards the end. Did you see Senator Thorpe protesting during the gay Mardi Gras parade? Yeah, I didn't. I just think she's actually, she appears to be a a professional protester and she found something that she could interrupt that would gain her some notoriety, so she decided to protest there. And she said that she was doing it because it was in memory of the blacks who had been persecuted by the police exactly like she was still being persecuted by the police now. Anyway, I just think she was beating a drum over something that has been well and truly beaten to death by now, so that ought to be enough of it. Anyway, I, I'm not. she's not my favourite person right now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So according to her Twitter post, quote, Black and brown trans women started the first Pride March as a protest against police violence. Today, we still face violence from police, proud to have joined the hashtag Pride in Protest float in Sydney to say hashtag no pride in genocide, hashtag no pride in prisons, and hashtag no cops in pride. So basically saying police have not been great for black and brown trans women. What the hell are they doing with a police float at a gay Mardi Gras? It's kind of what maybe, she maybe, was saying. Maybe there are gay police people who want to represent themselves. Mm-hmm. That is exactly the point I was going to make, Joe. They, they do actually have left footers on the police force, people. Left footers? Yeah. <laughs> really? I've never that experience. Am I living in a cave? I hadn't heard that expression, left footers. Oh, it's a very old expression, but anyway. Right. Have you been to they, the gay Mardi Gras? No, I've school? never been to the Mardi Gras or anything like that. It's just one of those things. I used to think to myself, oh, I should probably go, but I've never got around to it. Right. I heard an argument that yeah. for a significant proportion of the gay community, they resent the depiction of the oiled-up, hairless, sort of over-the-top version of gayness that is exhibited at the gay Mardi Gras and they think this is a false representation of of what gay people is it's it's they've overtaken what it means to be a gay man for example and I mean Scott you're not the sort of oiled up vision that you see at a Mardi Gras for example you're much it's not obvious with you until you actually tell somebody you know what I mean so do you, well, I suppose do you, so. do you don't feel feel that um, that this is a version of 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 expression of male gayness that you think yeah that's just it's actually a misrepresentation at all like this I don't like the way that you don't have any resentment about how gays are depicted in almost a caricature 
by the Mardi Gras? I don't have that sort of feeling. The only, the only feeling that I get from it is I think to myself, oh, that's playing to a very young crowd. Mm. So I feel like I'd be a little bit old if I went down there. Right. Anyway, it's just one of those things. I, I it's the, that's the only real, it's not even really objection. It's just one of those things that I just think to myself, yeah. I've never been a big fan of the sort of hairless, oiled up look. Mm. If that makes you feel any better. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just one of those things I just think to myself, no, nah, they're not really doing it for me. And, the you know, just the whole wearing angel wings and all that sort of stuff, nah, that's not me. So, okay. Yeah. You know, we say. But to each their up. own. Yeah. To each their own. You know, it's just one of those things I just think to myself, if that's what people get get off on, then they should be able to do. Yeah. It's really not my cup of tea. Yeah. Alison has an uncontained glitter phobia, which prevents her from ever going to the Mardi Gras as a supporter. <laughs> I, I think at the next pub meetup, we should smuggle in a, a little packet of glitter. No, we won't, won't do that to Alison. Okay. So, yeah, what do you thought? What do I think? I don't know. I mean, why not protest at a Mardi Gras? Why not sort of say, what the hell is there a police float here? There's still really... When you make a point that she feels that police are not helping out the gay community, I, you know, I'll read an article. I found this one from Guy Rundle in Crikey. Interesting. I don't think I, you guys, got this in the original notes. I sort of tacked it on later on. So Guy Rundle sometimes has a good turn of phrase. So he writes well at times, even if it is a bit confusing and all over the shop at other times. So here's a good paragraph. I thought. That someone was, because she was booed as well, and the crowd was sort of getting stuck into her for lying down in front of the float and disrupting the march. So he writes, that someone was booed by the Mardi Gras crowd for protesting, that it occurred in the first Mardi Gras to have a serving Prime Minister marching, that the people who then condemned Thorpe for her protests included Nationals leader David Littleproud, just shows you, shows you, well, what, the event has so many angles that had it not occurred, political tutors would have had to invent it as a teaching aid. That's a good sentence. Good sentence of writing. The event had so many angles that had it not occurred, polit- polit- politics tutors would have had to have invented it as a teaching aid. So he writes, the point was absolutely spot on. Mardi Gras organisers have given float space to private corporations, including American Express, denied groups such as the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Sure, Mardi Gras had to change that went from illegality to inner city popularity to global nation branding phenomenon, but the embrace of platform and finance capital and the exclusion of actual community groups is a pretty sad place to get to. The event was long ago taken over by fairly apolitical types and they haven't had much resistance in recent years. Claims by the LGBTQI plus left that queer is inevitably radically bogus. Queer is now the house ideology of middle-brow knowledge class culture. As tediously rote and moralistic as was once the Christianity it went up against. Scott, queer is now the house ideology of middle-brow knowledge class culture. 
You're part of the mainstream now, Scott, of just highbrow middle-class culture. Do you feel that? No. Yeah. I've never really... <laughs> don't feel excluded you know, it, it, from it, though. No, do do? I don't. I don't. I, I, you know, it's. I suppose I do actually watch what I say in front of people. There's, like, I'm not out at work or anything like that. If someone asks me, I'll tell them. Mm. But I never actually make a, I never make a song and dance about it. Mm. You know, in six months' time, that. I might actually tell them. I don't know. I'll keep going with this. He says, "I rundle and crikey." Even so, the inclusion of the AFP is next level. The AFP is a sinister, politicised, self-serving force. Casual about doing damage in the pursuit of its goals, often self-serving. Mardi Gras may have become a semi-publicly owned event, but it's got to be something of a bit more than homo moomba. Otherwise, its meaning dissolves altogether. No police force should have a role in it. I'd say exclude the fire service as well, but I suspect that would not fly. I think that's because of the desire to see oiled up firemen on a flight. Exactly. Yeah. The co-option of... Who's saying YMCA? Yeah, the YMCA. Village people. Village people. There was, there was people. a cop in village people, wasn't there? Yeah, I think there was. Yeah. yeah. A motorcycle cop, wasn't he? Was he a motorcycle Possibly. cop? Possibly. I think. With a helmet? Yeah. yeah I think Google will tell me. Yeah. Okay. I'll keep going. The co-option of Mardi Gras to the point where it is indistinguishable from state tourism and national branding is the same as the soft totalitarian process governing the politics of the voice. That's where we're heading. The latest episode of this, so he's talking about the voice. The latest episode of this was Professor Megan Davis telling a Universities Australia conference that the organisation representing the places whose core role is unrestrained and and unguided free inquiry and thought should adopt a pro-yes position on the voice. So Professor Megan Davis telling Universities Australia they should be pro-yes on the voice. And she says, universities say they don't want to be political, but the decision not to take a stance for the voice to parliament is a political decision. And Davis, in saying this at the Universities Australia conference, was doing it in response to the Vice-Chancellors Association calling or saying that it would have no official position on The Voice. And at that conference, Davis's speech, was was 100,000 strong people there. They gave it a standing ovation. So we've got a Professor Megan Davis at Universities Australia saying universities should come out saying vote yes in The Voice. And we had the Vice-Chancellors Association saying that we shouldn't be making any official position at all on The Voice. And the Megan Davis one got a standing ovation. Any thoughts, gentlemen, on whether universities and groups representing multiple universities should be providing a position statement on The Voice? Universities, um, no. Lecturers individually, sure. Exactly, I agree with or, Joe. Or just can if they want to. Oh, I think can if they want to. I don't yeah. think they should be restricted from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with Joe. But, but I, just... I, I think this is the same as Brexit. I think there will be a very shallow, ignore any real criticism and accuse anybody who says no of being a racist. Yep. 
and then we'll be very surprised when they lose the vote and we'll go, oh, my God, I didn't realise we had so many racists out there. So rather than engaging the real concerns that people have, just ignore it all, tar it as racism and plough on regardless and then be surprised when you lose the vote. Yep. So Hmm. there's a podcast uh, by a guy called Eddie Yokovich, which I occasionally listen to, sort of news and politics podcast, a bit like this one, where they review the week. They're kind of Canberra insider type guys, him and his mate, and obviously on the left-wing bent, that was super critical of the Morrison government. And anyway, actually, I think I've got it here as a PowerPoint slide to show you. Oh, yeah. I'll go back to this. So this is a tweet that he put out, which was looking at a poll. Wow, 42% say no to the voice. As Faith Bandler said in 2001, racism is well organised in Australia. No beating around the bush. Vote no equals racist. That's the sort of thing you're talking about, Joe. (laughs) Just if you... Yep. If you are going to argue a vote no on this one, you're going to be immediately branded a racist. And look, just because it's so well put, you get another rendition edited down of what this guy said on Tonightly. I mean, first of all, Brexit. What the fuck happened there? Well, the left employed a cunning two-prong by one, calling every Leave voter a racist, and two, failing to put forward a positive case remain. Right. Weird how not engaging 17 million Brits and slacking them off instead didn't win them over, but at least yelling RACIST online made us feel good about ourselves and had no bad, long-lasting side effects. The UK has voted to leave the European Union. Ah, shit. Well, don't worry. After Brexit, we learnt our lesson. And then the US election came along and we thought, nah, let's just do that again. You could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Not surprisingly, the left's campaign of vote for us, you pieces of shit, didn't pan out so well. (laughs) Brexit, (laughs) basket of deplorables, and the voice is shaping up. In the same way. It's going to get ugly. It's going to get very ugly. And I, I, I think that the proponents of the voice have to actually take a long, hard look at themselves and they should actually look at that as a warning and that if they rely on racism to get them over the line, it's not going to work. No, it's telling people they're you racist. Know, exactly. It's, it's just going to backfire on them. Let's look at some opinion. I, I think... I, I think the average person is just going to go, but I'm not racist, so fuck you. Exactly. Yes. Which is what happened in those other situations as well. So mm-hmm. there's a chart, support for the voice to parliament, and uh, a little bit, let's find it here so I can read it, 65% in favour of the voice to parliament, 35% against on that particular one. Uh, now, puts- if it's... If it's a referendum to change the constitution, mm. does it not require a two-thirds majority? No, it requires no. a it requires a majority of yes in a majority of states. You've got to get an overall majority, and that has to come from a majority of states. Mm-hmm. Okay. So but no, the, there's no two-thirds involved. 
Mm. Okay, no. maybe that's a US thing. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Yeah. In terms of voter strength, on you know, in terms of the voice department, <laughs> a hard yes, thirty-eight percent. A soft yes, twenty-six percent. A soft no, fourteen percent. And a hard no, twenty-one percent. So that's how that might. Well, up. if they want to, if they want to see the soft yes move to the to the soft no, then all they've got to do is just go out there calling people racist. Indeed. Yep. You know, because all that's going to do is get their backs up and then it's going to think, well, fuck you, I'll vote against it. Mm. So there's a chart with how it breaks down in terms of political allegiance. No surprise that Labor voters, 50% hard yes, 27% soft yes, so a total of 77%. Whereas the coalition, a hard no is 40% and a soft no is 49%, so 59% against. And the Greens are a hard yes, 62%, soft yes, 28%. So a total yes vote of 90%. There's a 3% hard no in the Greens voters. Interesting. So Sounds like some of us. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's where I am, dear listener. Mm-hmm. Voted greens and pretty much, am I a hard no? I'm a soft no probably. It's not yeah. the end of the world if it happens. It's not the end of the world if it happens. But, but I'm, I'm quite firm about the answer, but there, I'm not rabid about it. Like it, The world isn't going to collapse. But I, I think you could be changed to a yes given certain caveats. Yeah. Well, uh, no, the caveats would completely change the nature of the voice department, so it's no right. longer the okay. voice, I think, so in my case. So then so, you're a hard no? Probably am, yeah, probably am. But, but yeah, without being crazy. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it wouldn't be that, would I? Reasons. Why are people thinking this? Why are people supporting the voice department? And the most popular reason was... It would give Indigenous Australians the ability to help inform decisions that impact their lives. Next was it will help governments make more informed policy decisions regarding Indigenous Australians. Next was it is what Indigenous leaders are asking for. And then the fourth one in terms of popularity was it would unify Australia, allowing us to reconcile with our history Anchoring our democracy in 65,000 years of culture and law. Mm. See, that's probably the weakest argument. Yes, I think it's going to end up dividing us. 65,000 years of culture and law? (laughs) That's what they reckon, but, you know, it's just... Anyway, we won't go down there. That's the reasons. And the reasons against the most popular was it would not make a practical difference. Second was... It would give Indigenous Australians the ability to influence policy which other Australians do not have. Third was it does not have the support of all Indigenous Australians. Fourth was Indigenous Australians already have representation in Parliament. So I have to say all of those seem far more appealing reasons of common sense to me than the other ones do. So that's those. Right. Let me get back to my notes then, get rid of that. Don't need the chart anymore. And so, Joe, we had, because we didn't expand it. That's why the comments still appear. That's good. Okay. Right. 
Let me scroll through to there's a book out at the moment which was essays about various people's reasons why they would say no and unfortunately this was an, a book I think promoted by people on the National Party or something like that, some people, some characters who I normally would not engage with. But anyway, one of the writers is an economist, Henry Ergus, and he cites the principle that all citizens should have the same weight in the process of political decision-making. He believes that a voice would give a named national minority, that is Indigenous Australians, special access to the legislative process. You're right. It should be reserved only for major corporations. Yes, it, through through lobbying via large donations. Indeed, yes. He writes, what's wrong with that? In Ergus's view, to institutionalise group representation of that kind suppresses differences of opinion within the group and exaggerates the group's loyalty to values and identities that they think define them. This scenario disturbs Ergus but others would welcome it as confirming Indigenous peoplehood. I think this is an interesting argument, that the people who are on The Voice, it's going to encourage them to exaggerate the group's loyalty to values and identities that they think define them. I think that is inherent in creating a group like that. It's been an argument in the UK Mm. with Islamic groups that are in you know are brought in to consult on various things yes and and gay muslims and apostates have said that they feel excluded by this process because they are a target of brown people hating I, i'm not going to call it islamophobia mm. and and these people who do not represent them are speaking up to put input into government decisions yeah. And they so, say they feel excluded from, from the whole process. Yeah. And and this argument that people would be if if, for example, you were part of the voice and you were going to say, Oh, look, that law, we're all the same on that, you know, indigenous whites, Asians, we're, it's it's no special thing for us. That's that's not What's a likely scenario when you set up a group designed to try and find special mm-hmm. interest for special groups? Their, their role is to try and find difference rather than find commonality. That's what you're there yeah. for and you're going or, to be or, looking for it rather or than to the opposite. Out some special exemption. Yes. I think that is an interesting sort of point that he made and... He says, by perpetuating the idea that Indigenous Australians are essentially different from other Australians, he argues it would fuel demands for a formal treaty, which would make Australia a sort of a binational state. So that was that book. Kenan Malik actually has written a very interesting book that I am working my way through called Not So Black and White, which is a history of race from white supremacy to identity politics and I have, from the very first page, is absolutely loving it. I'm up to page 65, and I can tell I'm going to love the rest of the book. Kenan Malik, really good writer. Just to give you a bit of a taste of what he says, a quote here from Kenan Malik. We live in an age in which most societies there is a moral abhorrence of racism, albeit that in most, bigotry and discrimination still disfigures the lives of many. 
We also live in an age saturated with identitarian thinking and obsessed with placing people into racial boxes. The more we despise racial thinking, the more we seem to cling to it. So interesting guy, Ken Malik, Pakistani, growing up in England, bashed and subjected to racism, but totally against like, sort of Reverse identitarian racism. thinking. Yeah, and but still very left-wing. It is possible, dear listener, to be <laughs> left-wing, totally against identitarian thinking, and and want to a, 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 approach these issues, dear listener, as an issue of class, which is where Chris Hedges gets to in the next article I'm going to read from. So I have quoted Chris Hedges before, and American guy, famous journalist, did lots of stuff reporting in the Middle East. He's a Presbyterian minister, does lots of community work in jails and stuff like that. The only Presbyterian minister that I would want to have dinner with and would look forward to it and think, wow, this is going to be a great night. Very, very interesting guy, Chris Hedges, definitely on the left. And he was talking about, remember guys, about the murder of Tyre Nichols, who was bashed by those five black Memphis Policeman, did you yeah. ever see that, Scott? Yeah, no, I didn't see. The, I didn't see the footage. It's yeah. just I did. I did hear about it though, and I thought to myself, well, yeah, you Such. know, that's that's clearly a case that the cops didn't matter whether they were white or black felt that they had the ability to beat the snot out of someone, and they beat yes. the snot out of someone. They did indeed. Yeah, yeah. So he in this article, listen to this. And then, but thinking of the voice and thinking of Australia and Indigenous issues as you're listening to this. So, and thinking of, of placing representation of minorities in institutions without an ideology to address the problem that affects the minority. Just putting people insti- into institutions doesn't solve the problem. And therefore, just creating an institution doesn't solve the problem. Anyway, the brutal murder of Ty Nichols by five black Memphis, Tennessee police officers should be enough to implode the fantasy that identity politics and diversity will solve the social, economic and political decay that besets the United States. Not only are the former officers black, the city's police department is headed by Serilyn Davis, a black woman, None of this helped Nichols, another victim of modern-day police lynching. The militarists, corporatists, oligarchs, politicians, academics and media conglomerates champion identity politics and diversity because it does nothing to address the the systemic injustice or the scourge of permanent war that plagues the US. It's an advertising gimmick, a brand used to mask mounting social inequality and imperial folly. It busies liberals and the educated with a boutique activism, which is not only ineffectual, but exacerbates the divide between the privileged and a working class in deep economic distress. The haves scold the have-nots for their bad manners, racism, linguistic insensitivity and garishness while ignoring the root causes of their economic distress. The oligarchs could not be happier. So he goes on here, he's going to quote a number of people 
who are minorities in institutions but who are not helping the minority group that presumably they represent. So he says here. Obama? Yes, gets a, indeed. Good pick, Joe. Did the lives of Native Americans improve as a result of the legislation mandating assimilation and the revoking of tribal land titles pushed through by Charles Curtis, first Native American vice president? Are we better off with Clarence Thomas, who opposes affirmative action on the Supreme Court? Clarence Thomas, obviously a black man. Or Victoria, Victoria Newland, a war hawk in the State Department. Is our perpetuation of permanent war more palatable because Lloyd Austin, an African-American, is the Secretary of Defence? Is the military more humane because it accepts transgender soldiers? Is social inequality and the surveillance state that controls it ameliorated because Sundar Pichai, who was born in India, is the CEO of Google and Alphabet? Has the weapons industry improved because... Kathy J. Warden, a woman, is the CEO of Northrop Grumman. And another woman, Phoebe Novakovich, is the CEO of General Dynamics. Interesting points there. And I'll pause briefly to talk about... I've been watching bits and pieces from the Royal Commission into RoboDebt. Have you seen any of it? Yeah, Uh, it's a bloody disgrace. So there's some people on Twitter who are doing great stuff in extracting little snippets of the testimony and it's disgusting how these people are now trying to blame everybody else except themselves. It wasn't me. It was either my boss or my underling or my associate who's died since. Like they, They're pathetic in the way they are doing everything to say, I can't recall except to say, I, I recall that it wasn't me. <laughs> That's, and I think the, the people running that Royal Commission are doing, it seems at the moment, a really, really good job. The council assisting and the lady who is running that Royal Commission is not swallowing any BS at all. You can tell they are completely on top of the detail and they know what's going on and they're going to be quite scathing of the actions of a number of people. When the oh, I think so. Yeah. When the final report comes out, I might even read the whole bloody thing. Yeah. And one of the things that just strikes me is that the players in this drama are quite a combination of male and female. Yeah. It's quite a number of senior female public servants and male public servants guilty as hell of, of turning a blind eye to what was obviously an illegal practice and was harmful to people. And... It's sort of like, oh, we need to get women in positions of power because women will bring a different perspective to things. And that is true to an extent, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Because, no, it doesn't. Um, <sighs> they have come at some of these women have been as hard-assed as some of the worst men in terms of their approach to dealing with unfortunate people. And, 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 you know, that's the whole bloody point. I, I cannot believe that. I didn't know whether or not it was illegal, but I thought at the time that it was crazy that they were taking an average of what you, that they were averaging your income for last year and then working that out. And they were saying, well, you've obviously under, under-reported your income. Hmm. 
you know, can they not see that, you know, you might have been earning 90 grand for nine months of the year and then you had three months that you got your sack and so you had three months that you had to be on the dole. Yeah, you know. a really cruel disinterest in the position of people who were really threatened by this stuff and a ratcheting up of the threats. It's terrible what happened to these people and oh, just the disregard in these groups and, and now they're scrambling as they, as they try and deflect their own culpability is really quite disgusting to watch. So, but, yeah, it just struck me that um, certainly a, quite a generous level of female involvement in the whole rotten scheme, as, of course, as well as men, and having soft female touch, if there is such a thing, didn't offer either. So, no. But anyway, I digress. Just back to Chris Hedges' article, just getting some of the highlights here. Colonial regimes find compliant Indigenous leaders willing to do their dirty work while they exploit and loot the country they control. We live under a species of corporate colonialism, the engines of white supremacy which constructed the forms of institutional and economic racism that keep the poor poor are obscured behind attractive political personalities such as Barack Obama, whom Cornell West called a black mascot for Wall Street. These faces of diversity are vetted and selected by the ruling class. Glenn Ford, the late editor of the Black Agenda Report, told me in 2018, these institutions write a script. It is their drama. They choose the actors. Ford called those who promote identity politics representationalists who, quote, want to see some black people represented in all sectors of leadership, in all sectors of society. They want black scientists. They want black movie stars. They want black scholars at Harvard. They want blacks on Wall Street. But it's just representation. That's it. He goes on. Identity politics and diversity allow liberals to wallow in cloying moral superiority. They do not confront the institutions that orchestrate social and economic justice. They seek to make the ruling class more palatable. They are the useful idiots, the billionaire class, moral crusaders who widen the divisions within society that the ruling oligarchs foster to maintain control. Not much to go, nearly there. Diversity is important, but diversity when devoid of a political agenda that fights the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed is window dressing. It's about incorporating a tiny segment of those marginalised by society into unjust structures to perpetuate them. He says here, a class I taught in a maximum security prison in New Jersey wrote Caged, a play about their lives. The 28 students in the class insisted that the corrections officer in the story not be white. That was too easy, they said. That was a feign that allows people to simply to simplify and mask the oppressive apparatus of banks, corporations, police, courts and the prison system, all of which make diversity hires. Diversity, when it serves the oppressed, is an asset, but a con when it serves the oppressors. So... Just thinking about that, I was thinking that uh, getting minorities into institutions is useless if they are not there to change the institutions 
and putting right-wing neoliberal black people into power isn't going to help black people impoverished by right-wing neoliberal philosophy. It will provide a cover for the harmful activities of the institution. So Lydia Thorpe is saying that Sydney Mardi Gras, no doubt full of gay people running the show, is a captured institution and The Voice runs the risk of achieving representation but without a philosophy to deal with the problems of Indigenous people. Add that to all of the ideas surrounding The Voice that we'll get to when we eventually do the ultimate Indigenous Voice episode somewhere <laughs> down the track. You know South Park? Mm, I know. That I've never mm. watched much of it. I've just seen snippets of it. Okay. The black kid in South Park, his name is Token. Mm-hmm. Token. Ah, there we go. Shailene in the chat room says, I have written and deleted so many comments, angry face. I know you would have, Shailene. <sighs> ah, let's see. Oh, Alison, I went for the last day to the hearings of the Royal Commission. Surreal experience. Actually, Alison wrote a nice little piece about that. Is that is there a link on your Twitter about that, Alison? Because that was good. And Alison discusses her glitterphobia. People can read that in the chat room. All right. Well, we've kind of reached the end of that episode. Makes yeah, up for it's quite a long one. Hmm. But anyway, ideas to think about in all that. Well, fine. Good idea to delete, Shailene. Just stop for a moment and just sort of think about the concept of. Shailene is asking, do you still have speakpipe? Uh, yes, yes, I do have do speakpipe. And we've got a message from Landon Hardbottom tonight, don't we? Yes, and we got. We will finish. Thank you, Scott, for reminding me. No worries. That we will. Uh, we we all need to sign off, and then Landon Hardbottom has left a sign-off for us. Thanks for the <laughs> reminder, we'll play Scott. So, yes, uh, let me just find hand and hard bottom. There he is. So, all right, you're around next week, both guys. You're not going anywhere. You're back in Brisbane, Joe. I am, yes. All right, Scott, yeah, you're around. around. Yeah. I'll be around. We'll be back. Oh, actually, next week, Scott, you've got one week to read The Carbon Club because we're doing the book review next week. Oh, do I need to finish yeah. it off by then? Yes. Damn. Uh, I haven't got it, so I'll sit uh, next week out then. All right, well, we're going to do the Carbon Club. So Paul from Canberra is going to come on and we're going to talk about the Carbon Club. So, Scott, if you've read it in the next week, come and join us. Otherwise, I will try. it'll be Joe and I and Paul from Canberra. And anyone uh, else who's read it and who wants to participate and be a voice on this little book club that we'll do next week, the Carbon Club, let me know. Send me a message. Go onto the website. There's an email address there. And let me know if you'd like to participate. Otherwise, just join in the chat room. But, yeah, the Carbon Club next week. So there we go. All right. That, the, the bits of it that I've read have been very good, yes. Yes. So I haven't finished it either. I've got to put down Ken and Malik, Not So Black and White, and finish off the Carbon Club. And a reminder for those in Brisbane, it's available on Brisbane City Council's website as an audio book. Yeah, very good. So, all right, that's next week. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you then about the Carbon Club. Bye for now. See you later, Trevor. Have a good night. And it's a good night from him. Vengeance, retribution, that's the end of the podcast. It's time for bed. Oh, boys. Pick up your Jewish space lasers and put them away. Now, have you brushed the shark's teeth? Good. What's this?
Stop tying up the rather large chaps. Yes, yes, I know that you're practising for when we get shay in our clutches, but we have bigger fish to fry now. That glove fellow's made a reappearance, so we're going to have to take him out again. Okay. It's time for bed. Good night. You. Yes, you, lurking in the corner there. The podcast's finished. Go home, or I'll shoot you out of a torpedo tube.